Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Severium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's, it's you know, we're, we're recording this towards the end of it. I think it's come out maybe the second week in January, first week in January, recording this a couple of weeks before, just before Christmas. And my, you know, my, my wife is off of school, off her job. My kid is out of his daycare is closed. And so he's just sort of like causing havoc all around the house. The problem that like, like, so, so I have a, I have a, you know, my, my, my kid's a two-year-old boy. And the thing about two-year-old boys mm-hmm. is they basically have unlimited energy. Like he doesn't eat food, but he still has unlimited energy. His new favorite game is it's called, we, he's called, he calls it run down the court where he takes his basketball and he runs in a giant loop around the entirety of our apartment. And then he dunks the basketball and we do this over and over and over and over again. And it's like, if, I'm going to be cooped up with him for the next week, and I think that I am going to die. That's my that's, that, that that that's my prediction. Do you, do, you, do you think that it would be different if you had a if you had a two year old girl? Here's what I know. I have I have a bunch of I have a number of friends who who have kids, and and you know we're all obviously in a group chat together or whatever. And they'll post about their children. And one of them posted a video of her. They they all have daughters. One of them has a son, and the rest of them are all daughters. And one of them posted a video of her of her older daughter just like playing generically in like a totally what seemed to be like totally tame fashion. And and she was like, look at how wild she's being. And I was like, you do not <laughs> you don't have a vision <laughs> at all. You have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. Yeah. And of course it's it's all yeah. Because because even at one years of age, we're we're socially conditioning the children to behave differently that's you the know, reason I had, this, right? I had this i had this argument somebody i was like no no i'm pretty sure that one's built in yeah uh, that 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 variation is built in at least to some extent no so that's uh, that's a good segue to our our topic today Aaron, do you want to tell our listeners what we're talking about yeah today we are going to be talking about men and all the ways in which society systemically oppresses them no just kidding we're going to be talking about men and kind of the the rather alarming trends that have emerged in the past past few decades really and become more prominent in the past few years some of this will be familiar to our listeners but i'll rehash it anyway women are much more likely to graduate college they're a higher share of top academic performers there are certain job areas where the gender wage gap is actually reversing and of course Perhaps most visibly and most tragically, men are a lot more affected by pathologies like drug overdose deaths, suicide. It's something like men kill themselves at four times the rate of women, never mind homicide and and other forms of violent crime. All of these facts obviously cut against the grain of the narrative that men have it so good, women have it so bad, the patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. But we we think that they are important to talk about. And so today we're going to be talking about kind of the institutional and policy drivers of the inequality between men and women, that, or at least the inequality between, between men and women in which women are favored. So Charles, what's your take on all this? Yeah, you know, I'm 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 interested in this as a topic that sort of intersects with a lot of my interests in my work in crime and drugs in... So I've done a labor force cessation on marriage and family formation. And, you know, I think the the sort of decline of some subset of the male population and, and, and the rise of a large portion of the female population over the past 50, 60 years isn't underattended, but a really important social phenomenon. It's part of why I wanted to have our guest on today, because I think it's, 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 it's an interesting, important topic. You know, part of how I think about this is that in many regards, shifts in the balance of success between the genders are downstream of shifts in how we operate our society sort of secularly, rising salience of education, the rising importance of bureaucracy, of bureaucracy and the potency of bureaucracy are things that I think favor women on average. And so, you know, in some sense, part of what I'm today is, you know, the, the, the outcomes for men that we're talking about are downstream developments that are both good and bad. So, so part of my interest in sort of getting our, getting our guests into is, is drilling down on to what extent are these inequalities actually a problem and what is the best way to mediate them without losing the gains we might have gotten in other areas? What's your take? 
Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm similar to you. I guess I would just, just add that if you buy that men are at least in some sense systemically disadvantaged in our society, it raises a kind of obvious question of whether we should have policies in place that specifically aim to help men, right? Kind of like pro-male affirmative action. You know, you hear this argument with African-Americans and other groups, like, well, you know, they're systemically disadvantaged. So it's not enough to just have colorblind policies. We need race conscious policies that specifically help the victims of systemic racism. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows that we don't love that argument. I think there are there can be a temptation, especially although not exclusively among those on the right, to be confronted with this data about male underachievement and say, huh, yeah, you know, I guess maybe the patriarchy narrative is not so clear cut. Men are disadvantaged in certain ways. Okay, why not just do, you know, maybe maybe we should be doing more to help men. Maybe we should have scholarships just for men or other things like that. It's not, it's not a crazy leap given where we already are with the sort of race conscious stuff. I guess I'm interested in sort of exploring the the steel man case for that and also in I think exploring the various objections to it because I'm even speaking as a guy I am not totally persuaded that more gender conscious policies in either direction would be a good idea. I think a good guy to dig into a good guy to dig into all that with is our guest. Richard Reeves is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, where he holds the John C. and Nancy D. Whitehead chair. Richard is the director of the Future of the Middle Class Initiative. His research focuses on the middle class, inequality, and social mobility. He's the author of several books, most recently, Of Boys and Men. Richard, welcome to Institutionalized. All right, thanks for having me on, guys. So, so we like to uh, we like to sort of start with a, a little bit provocative question. Your your book is about your book is about the rising challenges to men in contemporary American society, and you propose at the conclusion of the book, and in fact throughout the book, a number of remedies for these problems. Matt Iglesias, the talking head, pointed out that it came away from the book saying he found your your diagnoses persuasive but wondering why the solutions needed to be gendered. Why is it that we need to target boys specifically rather than sort of trying to remediate for everybody and then falling on boys disproportionately? What do you say to that argument? Yeah, I, I think that's a good argument. And Matt's not the only one to have made it. I mean, people well, well to the left of him have made the, a similar argument. And, and I think this is some of what you were hinting at in, even in there in your intro, which is that why don't we just back away from this whole idea of dividing people up, right? Rather than saying we need like we need male-friendly education policies and female-friendly education policies, and the same with race and so on. Why don't why don't we just have good education, right? Why don't we just have good welfare systems, etc.? I think that's a persuasive argument in lots of areas, right? And I think a lot of public policy can actually be correctly, if not blind to, then certainly not geared around gender differences. So then the question becomes, okay. When are there differences that do seem to justify that approach? And you can think of examples for, for women, you know, where you might say issues around, you know, balancing work and family, issues around childcare, disproportionately influence women's labor force participation, right? So why are women not working? You get a very different answer to the question, why are women not working, to the answer, why are men not working? So if you're interested in trying to help people work, there's quite a strong argument for saying, well, let's not just have a blanket policy, employment policy here, because it turns out that the reasons women aren't working is around childcare, maybe preferences to stay at home, income, et cetera. But that's not true for men. I mean, your work shows this, Charles, and Nick Eberstadt, AEI, and others kind of show it's a very different story. It's disability, very often it's around drugs, et cetera. And so if you, if you are seeking to improve labor force participation, I use that as one example, then I think it might make sense to have at least some of your policies, which are sensitive to the different needs that people have to reach that goal. I would say the same of education policy. Generally speaking, you want good education for everybody, sure. But are there certain aspects of education that favor one more than another? And is the balance currently correct? I would say no. I'd say that the education system currently structurally slightly favors women and girls. And there are things that we can do to rebalance it somewhat without having to turn everything into gender. And the last thing I'll say on this is that I do think we've got to sort of go one way or the other. Right. And so for the people who say to me, I don't think we should be looking at gender at all, I'll say, okay, should we abolish the 40 state level commissions on women? 
the 250 city and county level commissions on women, the seven federal federal agencies on women's health, the Gender Policy Council in the White House, which only looks at women's issues. Let's talk, right? But generally, that isn't what they mean. And so I do think we've got to, we've you either got to say, we shouldn't use gender, we should use another category and back away from all of those gender specific policies, all of the STEM scholarships for women, et cetera, back away, get rid of all of that, which is, by the way, billions of dollars of change. Or start to say, well, maybe there are some areas where actually it would make sense for boys and men to get some gender sensitive help too. And that's where I learned. So let's 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 take a step back and sort of zoom in on or I guess zoom out. We alluded in the intro to a number of disparities between men and women, boys and girls, but can you give us the ten thousand foot view of your of your factual thesis of of where what what the disparities are, where you see them emerging, why you think of them as a problem? Yeah. So I, I look at it under sort of three big data buckets, if you like, and then and then I guess some of the issue, issues that arise from that around health. So the first one is education. You've already mentioned this in passing, but there are there's a big, very big gender gap in education in in the U.S. now, and in fact across advanced economies. So to just put a couple of data points on the table, because you have a very da- data oriented audience who I'm sure like this to be grounded. And so let's put some data on. So college campuses in the U.S. are about 60, 40 female, male now. Women are about 15 percentage points more likely to get a four year college degree than men. And to put that in context, that's a bigger gap than we had in 1972, the other way around. So in 72, men were about 13 percentage points more likely to get a four-year degree. So that was big, and that was one of the things that led to Title IX, which was passed that year, and huge efforts to improve women. Now the gap's a little bit bigger, but the other way around. In high school, if you rank GPAs and then break them into deciles, top decile, two-thirds girls, bottom decile, two-thirds boys. And in the average school district in the U.S., Girls are almost a grade level ahead in English and dead even in math. In the poorer districts, they're ahead in math and a full grade level ahead in English. And the second bucket is the labor market where we've seen stagnant wages at best for most men. Most men today earn less than most men did in 1979. So that's a, a pretty profound economic fact. And then Charles, your own work on labor force participation, just showing this kind of sharp decline, especially men with just a high school diploma. I think it's one in three now that are not in employment. And we can get into some of the reasons for that. So wages, employment. And then the third is family life, which I think, oh, of course, these things all end up being connected. But when you have one in five fathers who aren't living with their children, you see the dissolution of lots of marriages leading to a lack of parental relationship. So 40% of kids are now born outside marriage in the US and slightly more than half of those to non-college educated Americans, which is a profound transformation. And that's in turn based on a huge change in the economic relationship between men and women. So by my calculations, 40% of women now earn more than the median man. In 1979, it was 13% of women earning more than the median man. That's just an extraordinary shift in the economic relationships between men and women, as the women's movement, in my view, correctly aimed for. But the consequence of that is to leave a lot of men disoriented, unsure of their role, scriptless, et cetera, you know, choose, choose your metaphor. And then a result of that, I think, is to leave a lot of them feeling vulnerable, uncertain, and that and in turn can lead to all kinds of mental health problems. So men have always been more likely to take their own lives, but the suicide rates are, are rising for men. And I was struck by one study that asked men, didn't ask men rather, it looked at the words men had used to describe themselves before taking their own lives. And the two most commonly used words by suicidal men to describe themselves were useless and worthless. Now, that's kind of not surprising in a way. That's a selected sample of people, but it's the specificity of those words really struck me. That it's just a kind of sense of what's my value. And so I think that's left a lot of men, and especially above all working class men, black boys and men, though are on the top rungs of the ladder. That's where the problem is. So there's a lot there. Let's Let's start with the education attainment stuff, mm-hmm. because I think that's one of the more interesting and also I think potentially controversial parts of your book. Can you talk us through what, in your view, is driving the this differential educational attainment between men and women now? Sure, yeah. You're right, it was a lot. But you see, Charles said 10,000 feet. And the thing about 10,000 feet is you can see That's everything. That's what we wanted. It's great. <laughs> That's what you wanted, right? You said, go up there. And and, and, and I thought, and I, I can't tell you, I was just thinking about all the things I wasn't saying. But, yeah. um, but <laughs> so, yeah, this is an interesting one. 
And it's in some ways, it, it sounds very provocative to say that the education system is structured in favor of girls and women. But I believe that it is. And I think that's for a few reasons. The three I focus on are the fact that boys develop later than girls. Their brain development is just lagged. The biggest gaps are at about the ages of five and 15. In adolescence, girls' prefrontal cortexes develop about a year or two earlier than boys. And that's sometimes called the CEO of the brain. It has lots of neuroscientific labels as well. But I call it the bit of your brain that has you turn your chemistry homework in, right? It's the bit of your brain that knows you have chemistry homework, takes the chemistry homework home, completes the chemistry homework, takes it back in, turns it in, that remembers you have a chemistry class. I've raised three boys to their 20s. So like when you tell people that have raised boys and girls, especially in adolescence, there's a bit of a difference in their development. They're like, well, duh. Thank you, Brookings Scholar. And But it turns out that those skills are highly rewarded in our education system. That's why you see such a huge gap in GPA, but no gap really in standardized testing. So it's not that girls are smarter than boys, it's that they've got that act together. They're more future-oriented, they've got better impulse control, and they have that anyway, but it's just that they also develop them earlier. So there's just a difference in terms of development speed. The second thing is that there are fewer male teachers in our schools, and I'm reasonably convinced by the evidence that kind of all-female teaching profession on all female teaching staff is not great for boys, that it has some downward effect on boys' outcomes. And then the third thing is the boys and men seem to, on average, and of course, everything, pretty much everything we're going to talk about is on average. The question is how much the distributions overlap. They do better with more applied learning styles. So I'm very struck by the evidence, for example, that vocational high schools, career academies, these small employer-oriented Schools, boys did much better and they do much better in those environments, but there hasn't been much investment in that. So for those three reasons, I think, look, it's just a, it's a more female friendly education system. Right. Well, so, so, I mean, one and arguably two of those things are kind of social, right? The, the, maybe the lack of male teachers and, and wait, what was the, what was the last thing you said? The v- less, less v- applied learning. Right. Style, yeah. I mean, they're... so those are both, those are both kind of social things. Right. But then I think the first one, which is pretty big is, is, you know, a, potentially a biological thing about how women's brains typically work. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, this kind of gets to what I was, I was gesturing towards at the beginning, you know, one obvious question, objection someone might give to you is, well, okay, yeah. This is tilted in favor of women, but it's tilted in favor of women because women, for biological reasons, just happen to be better at the things that a modern meritocratic society should reward, including turning your homework in on time and being organized. These are just skills that women, for biological reasons, have more, you know, isn't that just sort of the, isn't just women winning kind of the meritocratic outcome, right? I mean, I think that's, that's a kind of natural question for people to ask. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think then the question becomes one of degree and right. how far you think it is driven by those differences and how far it's driven by by other differences. And I will point out that typically we won't we won't generally, and I should say, who do we mean by we here? I guess I mean people who are very interested in social inequality don't typically accept differences in natural aptitude as just, okay, of course, of course, there's an inequality there. Nothing to see here. Move on. We typically say, well, why is what can we do to compensate people for that? This is this yeah. would be the push towards an equity approach rather than an equality approach, which would be to say, okay, so if you've got one group who are somewhat at a biological disadvantage, maybe we should do more stuff and different stuff to help them. Maybe not. Maybe just live with the live with the differences in outcome. But certainly in education, as opposed to the labour market where I think I find it difficult to disagree with your argument. But in the education system, I think I don't think we should be applying purely meritocratic principles anyway. In some ways, I think the education system should be anti-meritocratic. Otherwise, it just continues to give more and more resources to those who've done well up until that point, and it just accelerates inequality. But that's a slightly bigger bigger topic to get into. But I would say the other thing is that those some of the, the other two that I mentioned, although the differences in the timing of brain development is the most obviously biologically based difference, I think there's an element of that in the other two as well. One of the reasons I think male teachers are useful is because they seem to treat male behavior differently. So I overheard your intro and Charles talking about his two-year-old running around dunking the basketball. Well, you see similar kinds of behavior playing in classrooms. This is boys are just a bit more likely to act differently. And it looks like male teachers are less likely to see that as a problem. 
So is that biological? Well, it's a kind of understanding, perhaps, of different differences in biology. And then finally, one of the reasons why applied learning styles may work on average better for boys than girls is because boys tend, if anything, to be a little bit more thing-oriented. And so have, working with their hands, seeing the practical application of what they're doing, et cetera, the, the rewards of what they're doing being more immediate is to some extent baked into some of those differences. So I would say all of them have at least at least a partially biological element. And so that means you have to confront the fact that there are on average some non-trivial biological differences between boys and girls that matters in education. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, it, no, it's it's interesting that in your answer, you 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 just forthrightly say that you reject meritocracy in education, education. Yeah, yeah i mean i just, well what's interesting is is you know your your book i mean there's a sense in which the argument you're making about male disadvantage is right coded right the people who care about that are supposed to be conservatives hmm. uh, but then but then you 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 just kind of say oh and you know meritocracy in education that you know we don't really need that right. we, we we need less of it i mean to me that's like that that's 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 a very progressive stance and one that yes. I think most centrists and conservatives in especially when it comes to race, right, will completely reject, right? I mean, most, you know, the, the, the dominant theme on the right now with education is, you know, and labor market too, is it should be meritocratic, all the identity politics is bad, right? You, you seem to be taking a pretty strong stand against that view. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways, you've sort of, you've, you've, draw me back to the subject of my my previous book dream hoarders on on class inequality but but it's not it's not it's not unrelated to this broad issue but you've stated my curriculum um, my position on education correctly which is as i said it should be essentially anti-meritocratic but i think that's because i want a meritocratic labor market and i think that oh. actually i think we'd have a much better opportunity society if i could persuade conservatives to be more progressive about education and liberals to be more free market and the labor market i think what actually happens is that we start we start fooling with the labor market to try and solve some of the inequality problems that were basically baked in during the human capital years and so you start festooning the labor market with all kinds of stuff because you screwed up earlier but i think in order to so I'll put it, you know, very in a very utopian way, in a very meritocratic way. Like I'm all for a meritocratic labor market if we have something closer to a fair start. The problem with a meritocratic principle applied through the education system is when five-year-olds turn up at the school system, huge differences in their skill level. Huge. So let's say we take the 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 best developed, smartest five-year-olds, give them a better education, give them more skills, they accelerate faster, then they get into better and more selective high schools and then more selective colleges. And so what's happening is that you're just taking a, a current level of development and ability and saying, okay, here are the kids who seem to have gone the furthest, let's give them even more. And it seems to me that's the opposite of what we should be doing. It's not that we want to stop the kids who are great from doing well, but if you think about it, if you apply the meritocratic principle ruthlessly in terms of resource allocation and selectivity all the way through the education system, then what happens is that whatever whatever inequalities you have at the age of five, you have massively increased them by the age of 25. In fact, it's you know if you're meritocratic, that's a good thing because you've taken the really smart kids at five and made them super, super duper smart by 25 and the dumb kids at five, well, you know, tough luck. I think that's entirely the wrong way to think about education. And if we got that right, then we could stop falling around with the labor market. <laughs> so let me just ask, just to, to stick with sort of the, the raw facts for a second. Obviously, the gender balance in achievement was not always this way. The male, the male wage premium used to be massive. Male labor force station much higher. Can you give sort of a, what is, what is the potted history here? How, how did we get from 1950s, 1960s America, 1940s America to today? Are you asking specifically about education, employment, or both, Charles? Both. Both. Okay. So in education, I think what's happened is that the the education system has become a bit more female-friendly over time, but much more importantly, we just took the brakes off girls and women. And I was really struck by this evidence that girls had better had better high school GPAs in the 1960s, when it just made absolutely no sense for them to be getting good GPAs at high school, because almost none of them went to college. The message to girls in the 1960s was, and again, I'm simplifying horribly, but don't you worry about college. You find yourself a nice husband. You're going to have kids, blah, blah, et cetera, right? But they were still beating boys in high school, not by as much as now, but wow, which tells me that just there was something about the system that was always to their advantage. It's just that we couldn't see it when we put a lid on women's and girls' educational aspirations and opportunities. Once we took the lid off, they just blew right past the boys and men. And it's interesting that 
you know, in the seventies in particular, and if you go back to the people who worked on this, when we're really pushing to kind of get towards more gender equality, when girls and women were behind, nobody predicted the overtaking. Nobody thought, wait, what if the lines just keep going? It was literally never discussed because it because people couldn't get their head around that idea. Like, what, what what do you mean a world where women are that far ahead of girls? But I think for all the reasons I said earlier, the education system now quite strongly favors women and girls compared to boys and men. And that that fact is now visible because they're going for it and they're encouraged and allowed to go for it in a way that they didn't before. As far as the labor market is concerned, the big change, of course, has just been, and related to the rise in education, the massive increase in women's economic power relative to men. Uh, uh, so that's a huge change, right? I mentioned the figure before that like 40% of women earn more than the average man, 40% of breadwinners are women, a third of wives earn more than their husbands. And again, these are like, have at least quadrupled in the last few decades, all of these numbers. That's coincided with an unrelated absolute effect on male employment and earnings from things like deindustrialization. There's no question that auto and automation that those have disproportionately hit men and working class men pretty hard. And so you've had this change in the structure of the economy away from traditionally male jobs that's coincided with this huge increase in women's economic power. And that's just it's just reshaped both the labor market and the historic economic power relationship between women and men in the blink of an eye, historically speaking. I mean, I think that the pace of these changes just is astonishing. It doesn't seem like it to a young person, like trying to tell, try, like I, just one example, trying to explain to my 20 something boys that there used to be a time when, when men and women did as well in school. Now, never mind a time when men were ahead in school. I'm trying to, I'm trying to describe the world I was in in college where they were roughly, where, where men and women were doing about the same. And like, really? Wow, that's interesting. Because they've just grown up in a world where it's just taken for granted that girls and women are better at school and college. That's how quickly it's changed. And I just think we're still, to some extent, coming to terms with the implications of those changes. But that would be that would be my quick view. So, so, so one way I think to theorize this is to say, under the, the old model was comparatively economically inefficient. That we were leaving lots of economically productive human capital on the table when we let. When when we assume that women were going to stay home, if they weren't going to work, we do single earner households, just dual earner households. And now we built an economy that is much much more efficient. Some large percentage of wage growth that you allude to this, some large percentage of wage growth in the past fifty years is just female wage growth being like yeah. stratospheric. And that seems like in on net from a you know total productivity thing perspective, probably pretty good. Do you do you buy that sort of? Basically, we picked up all of the the economic gains of letting women work thesis, and if so, what 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 do you say to that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that just taking a you know big step back and just looking at the economy, looking at the productive capacity of the economy, looking at the use of skills, huge huge improvement. Right? To not be leaving all of this human capital on the you know on the side, no question. I think that the when it becomes harder is when you look kind of within households, kind of within communities. And you see the the only reason middle class families have seen any increase in income the last few decades was because of increased women's earnings and employment. So that's a great thing at, on an aggregate level. It's a great thing for women's economic independence. But it's like, okay, so actually what that means is that men's wages and employment haven't actually been contributed to any of the growth in income at all. And so I now feel that we're actually leaving quite a lot of male human capital on the sidelines for different reasons. And this gets back to where we were before than female ones. But I, yeah, I basically buy that. I think this has been good. And, and I don't share this invocation of a world where you could raise a family on one wage, which you hear a lot now, from, uh, certain conservatives. And they never say which parent, which who it is that has the wage, but you kind of guess uh, what they're talking about. And and I think that we are in a world of, of, you know, most families have two earners if they're still together. I mean, it's just, that's the world we're in. And it's largely a good thing. But it brings me to the bigger point here, which is even big, even positive big social and economic changes have some unintended negative consequences. Right. Like you don't you don't change societies this radically and then just think everyone's going to be good. No problem. Everything's going to be groovy. I mean, just that's just an irresponsible way to think about positive social change. And of course, what you'll get is the people who are in favor of the social change dismiss any discussion of any downside, say, actually, has this been difficult for men? Yeah, it has. Is this yes? It's difficult for men. Does that mean we shouldn't have done it? 
Of course it doesn't mean that. And then the other side will say, this is terrible. Of course men are struggling. It's those feminists' fault. Let's go back to the 50s. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> so you feel like that's the situation that I feel like we've gotten ourselves in. Well, and, and so part of what what's also happened, as as you've discussed in your in your writing, is that you know, it, it, you, I think you say in the book, it took you a long time to get a lot of this data because it's not mm. often very easily available. And one reason you you cite for that is that states are required by law to report on mm. high school graduation rates, for example, by race, ethnicity, English proficiency, economic disadvantage, homelessness, things like that. But they don't require us to report the graduation rates by sex. And, you know, so could you talk a bit about how laws and policies not just have contributed to the crisis of of men, as it were, but also to kind of the the relative invisibility of that crisis? Like how have policies around data collection sort of made it take longer to put this picture together than it might have otherwise? Yeah, well, I think it's a, I, I think it's a huge problem. Aaron, for one thing, this the you, you say the invisibility, and I think t the invisibility in particular mainstream institutions, institutions of government, think tanks, the media, etc. It's just like I I thought I knew some of this stuff, and I was incredibly surprised, and and I kept surprising colleagues. And so you've given the example of the fact that states do not have to give their on time high school graduation rates by sex, which means I don't know what the on-time high school graduation rate of girls and boys in the US is. And also, by the way, it means I don't know what it is for black boys. I would really like to, because I have it by states and I'm doing this work now. And so I look at a state like Michigan and the on-time high school graduation rate for black boys in Michigan is 60%, which is 14 to 15 percentage points less than black girls. It's the biggest gender gap of any racial group in any state I can find. So I really want to know that at a national level. And they don't collect it because, well, is there anything to see there? But I'll give you one other example of this and then make, maybe make a broader point. In 2020, the enrollment rates into college for men dropped much more than for women, about seven times more for men than for women. And I found that in table two of page 14 of a National Center on Educational Statistics report. And I was like, wait, what? Had an RA, check it, looked at it again, Googled to see if anyone had written about it, no walked around the corridors of Brookings, showing it to all the education policy scholars I knew, I knew, including the ones who worked on higher education, saying, did you know this? They all went, no. Okay. So I can then safely assume no one knows this, but that's because it's in Appendix 2 of Table 4 of whatever the heck it is. And it wasn't in the bullet point summary. And I'm like, isn't that interesting? Like surely a sevenfold difference. Actually, girls' college enrollment or young women's college enrollment didn't really drop in 2020. Now, it turns out the reason for that is quite complicated. It's about the supply side and community college and vocational. But the fact that wasn't, and then the Wall Street Journal did do some follow-up stuff. And and what, so there's two things. One is, it, is the data even collected? Secondly, is it made available in a way that you can access more easily, easily? I'm just giving an example where it's available, but I almost stumbled across it, honestly. And then thirdly, is someone putting it out there? Is it accessible? Is it talked about? And that requires institutions and it, as to be pushing it out and saying, look, here's here's what's happening. Hey, did you know this? There aren't very many people whose job it is to wake up every day and share this stuff on boys and men. There are thousands of people whose job it is to do it for women and girls, and they do a very good job of it. So during COVID, for example, many, 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 many reports on the impact of COVID on women, some really good stuff. You really struggled to find stuff that was about men, even though men were dying at much higher rates, for example. So about 100,000 more men have died in the US from COVID than women. The difference in death rates for middle age is about twofold. Middle-aged men are about twice as likely to die from COVID. And it was, and even when I did that work, it was, again, quite hard to you know, because it was just like no one's job. And so no one was denying it. It's just that no one was analyzing right. it. No one was talking about it. So at some point, it becomes just a massive asymmetry in institutional investment. So let me ask just about one of the categories that I think we want to zoom in on solutions. But thinking generally about dysfunction among men, a lot of it is sort of concentrated at the bottom of the skills, earning education, pick your measure, SES mm -hmm. distribution. So for example, there's a there's a paper that I like from I think Paul Novosad at Dartmouth, who he goes and looks at, he he figures out education quantiles or and 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 looks at where are 
where's the increase in death concentrated? And it's not just among men without high school degree because the meaning of not having a high school degree, they're not having a high school degree is more negative selected over time. It's yeah. men at the very, very bottom of the education distribution. So, you know, this is a population that's risk for drug overdose death, for incarceration, for failing to form families, for any host of things. Can you talk about the status of that population and why it's gotten worse, I think, disproportionately over the past period of time? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'd be interested in that paper. So presumably what that means, I've done some similar work where if you do it by, say, a quartile, some kind of quantile, what that means is that you're not de dealing with a smaller and smaller group and selected group. So you're going to start picking up, like I'm very struck by the fact that people with some college, right, but didn't get a credential are, are as bad on many measures as high school. Is that what you're getting at, Charles? Are you, you're taking out that problem of the selection? Of yes. Yeah yeah. Of yeah. 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 I think it's I'll a big problem it with those. paper. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I, I mean, uh, Brad Hirschbaum's done some similar work too. And I actually did a paper on intergenerational educational mobility where I did a similar thing. I did it by quintiles because otherwise you do get this huge shift in composition. And, and it, I, I do think there's a huge problem where people see like, here's what's happened to the people with only a high school diploma or those without a high school diploma. I mean, you're quite right that to not get a high school diploma today is really hard. That was not true 40 years ago. So I, I agree with your, I think it's a very important empirical point you've made there, which is why I've un, underlined it. But yeah, in general, everything I'm talking about here is just so much truer at the bottom. In term, I mean, I'm really struck by things like marriage rates, chance of becoming a father, employment rates, and in education, huge gender gaps at the bottom, pretty small ones at the top. So... It doesn't, and you're right, it doesn't matter which measure you use, actually, particularly like parental background, et cetera. But you do see that this is just a much bigger problem for those at the bottom. And so one of my colleagues, Malika Thomas, has done some interesting work where she looks at siblings and college going. And that's great because they're like literally from the same house. And, that, and you see very big gender gaps for those from kind of bottom quintile families and not very big gaps at all from the top. And Raj Chetty's work shows something similar. If you look at the income gradient by parental income, pretty small difference at the top, massive difference at the bottom. And so these the class gradient in all of these things, if you put it against the gender gradient, what do you see is this huge gender gap towards the bottom. And I mentioned the school district data as well. Like if the, in the poorest school districts, the girls are smoking, the boys are everything. That's much less true. The girls are smoking, the boys in English everywhere. But in math, in particular, there's a huge SES grade, which is super interesting to me. So the boys in richer school districts are actually doing better than the girls in math. Not much, but a bit. Whereas in the poorest districts are doing much worse in math as well as in English. And so, and then of course, you can add race to the equation too. And I just mentioned the Michigan stuff, but basically all of these gaps, I mean, there are twice as many black women with college degrees as, as there are black men across, across the board. And so you have to look at it. If you look at it intersectionally, if I dare use that word here, but in the right way, in the proper way, then actually you find that there are many, many domains and areas where men are actually at disadvantage. And there are a bunch of counties I was looking at recently where the male labor force participation rate is much lower than the female one. And so I'm super interested in those counties as well. Right. Well, so so one of the the things that these these trends have affected, and you kind of allude to this, is marriage, mm. right? And the ability of men to pair off with women. Well, I guess I have a couple questions about this, but maybe to start, could you just, you know, talk about the, what would you say are the main drivers of kind of unmarried men, right? And and what do you see as sort of the main obstacles men have when it comes to marriage and dating right yeah. now? Yeah, well, I mean, the first point is just to underline what you just said, which is that if you go back to, say, 1980, roughly, there was essentially no class gradient in marriage rates. There was no class differences in divorce rates and so on. But basically, you couldn't, knowing whether you were married or not, didn't really tell you much about someone's class background. That's not true anymore. So again, measured whether it's by income or particularly by education, mm -hmm. whatever, you're seeing like a big a big gap. And so my colleague Isabel Sawhill has described family life as, this, as a new big class fracture in America. So at the top, you're seeing strong, you know, strong and much, much smaller drop in marriage rates and, and actually a slight decline in divorce rates. But for those with less less education and less money, significant drops. And for men in particular who are you know poorly educated, who don't have very good labor market prospects, low earnings, they're the ones whose marriages are, are much less. The question then, the rates are much less. Then the really question is why? 
and you get into some really get into the thicket of some social science here and some politically sensitive topics about causality and the extent to which one is driving the other. And so a big question here is, is it that men with weaker economic prospects are just less marriageable, to use that terminology, and so women just select away from them, right? Kathy Eden's work on another mouth to feed, etc. like the redundant male, why, why I don't need him, right? And he's useless, he can't earn anything, and he just eats more food, to put it really bluntly. And so it's that is, is the factor, and so it's that way around. But then other people would stress the evidence and think about Paul Amato and others here saying that actually it turns out that being married has a huge effect on male labor force participation and that it's it's what makes men work. And my interpretation of this is yes, it is both of those things for sure. And it's a boring answer. But unlike a lot of people on the left, I am pretty convinced about causal implications of marriage for employment. I mean, you look at the data and you see that, you know, having Having kids and being married just increases men's labor force participation to a really significant degree. You just can't not see a causal arrow there. And so, and then I think you get into a vicious circle, which is as you see a decline in marriage rates, you see less incentive and motivation to work. But as men work less and you know maybe get educate don't get educated as much, they do become less attractive marriage prospects. So there's less marriage. And so I do think we're in a bit of a vicious a downward spiral in terms of marriage, men, and work in working class communities. I, I, I want to actually, I, I said we talk at solutions, we should talk at solutions, but I want to ask sort of a pet question. My wife watches a lot of the Kardashians. I assume you're familiar with, with the mm -hmm. Kardashians. Yeah. Which yeah. which I like to argue, I've, I've argued 50% tongue in cheek is a vision of the future because the Kardashians are, is a high powered matriarchal family system where there are a bunch of different moms. They all sort of raise their kids collectively. None of the dads are in the picture. They all have enough wealth that they aren't they aren't really concerned about getting by materially and so they can sort of focus on specific emotional affective concerns. I'm I'm you know, and 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 basically as as women's earning power rises and as more earning power is socialized, I think I really do think that the you know the the role of men gets smaller and smaller, less less relevant. That we sort of you know, there, there's something to the the sort of the end of men thesis. Yeah. What do you what do you think about absent your preferred interventions? We're talking for interventions. What do you think about that sort of that 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 vision? Yeah, I think that's the fear. That's the fear. That's my fear, and it was the the fear of conservatives. In the 1970s, you know, I quote people like George Gilder, you know, who was twice elected male chauvinist pig of the year by Time magazine and the National Organization of Women and his book, Men and Marriage, but Jeff Dench and others who basically said that they said, look, if we if women get all this economic power, they won't need men. The men will get benched and we'll have all these surplus men. And I think that they were right to worry about that. And the, it's back to this. So you don't have big changes without you know, serious consequences. And so I think the, the question of what is the role of men? How how can we create a script for kind of pro-social, engaged, positive masculinity, if I can put it that way, in a world of women's economic independence? We're barely even asking that, asking that question. But I think that's partly because there are quite a lot of people who don't think the question even has to be addressed. If you're really all in on women's economic empowerment, and you might just roll your eyes at the guys and just say, well, get with the program. You know, you might say, well, just get over yourself. Say, okay, you had 10,000 years of patriarchy. We've had five minutes. Get over it. And I understand the impulse behind that, but it's incredibly unhelpful in terms of dealing with the actual problem that men are facing. But I would say that on the other side of the debate, there's very often a sense of, yeah, we told you this would happen. <laughs> we, you know, we warned yeah. you that if women got all this economic power, that the men would, would be left, you know, left flailing. So let's try and go back. Could we just reverse somehow to the 50s? And like, no, no one actually wants that. And so it feels to me as if we're in this place where ask, finding positive roles for men that are compatible with gender equality is the cultural task that we face. So so on the subject of, of positive roles for men, I want to ask you about that. I don't, I'm not sure you really discussed this in your writings, but you've discussed this on podcasts. It's a provocative argument. I want to, I want to grill you on a bit. Um, You've said that you support some kind of porn literacy classes yeah. for kids. You've suggested, and you've suggested, I think that, and I'm, I'm, you know, you can, you can push back if this is not an accurate characterization, but I think you, you basically said is that a lot of women 
justice like pornography because it reveals sort of uncomfortable truths about male sexuality being kind of an implication that we've almost in certain ways pathologized male sexuality and we need to just sort of recognize this is this is what it is and you know kind of work with what we've got i'm curious if you could both expand on that argument and then maybe defend defend yourself from some of the objections i have to it well which i will get into <laughs> uh, uh, i can't defend myself against them until i know what they are though aaron yeah, well, well, just expand on the argument, and then yeah. I'll give you. Okay, fine. So yeah. the the argument is that one of the biggest differences between men and women in terms of their, their psychology is the descent to which they're driven by sex. It's probably not the biggest. I say the biggest is probably around aggression, expressed express potential for aggression. But we could argue, you know, people could argue about which is bigger. But it's huge, right? It's absolutely huge. But however you measure it, you know, masturbation, things you're willing to sacrifice for sex, you know, how much you think about sex, whether you have sex with a stranger, right? There's just, there, there are, the, the distributions don't overlap very much. Let's put it that way. And it's very interesting to see a lot of feminist writers now sort of just saying that we need a, we need a kind of different vision of sex, the kind of sex positivity thing that, that a lot of feminists are now reacting against. I'm thinking about people like Christine Ember of The Post and others. Yeah. It's interesting. And so given that fact, given the fact that the, the, one of the big differences between this is around sex, what does that mean? Well, it means that kind of pornography, erotica, whatever you want to call it, has is, is always been around, always will be around in some shape or form. It is. It's just that the internet has been a force multiplier. So this huge problem now is just the kind of instantaneous accessibility of this content. It's just like, that's, we don't really know what the implications of that are yet. Certainly, I don't think we've got huge evidence for some of the things people are most afraid of from it. But so it's, it's, it's a real challenge. And it's probably of a piece with my general philosophy about these things is that if it's a challenge, then we should educate and equip ourselves to deal with it rather than engaging in some magical thinking that we can somehow either get rid of pornography or get rid of that aspect of male psychology that leads them to that. Instead, I think it's a bit like alcohol or any, something else. You can say, look, I don't think we're going to get rid of alcohol either, but I think it'd be really good to learn about what alcohol does to your brain. Same with porn. And actually, I've seen, I've seen some evidence from small, from small interventions that just teaching boys about dopamine and what happens and the risks of addiction and so on, and treating it sort of straightforwardly is a much more effective strategy in in this kind sure. of porn, you know, a world where porn is everywhere, is better than uh, than sort of moralizing and just kind of going. Oh, I can't believe he's looking at that. What's wrong with my son? Yeah, yeah. What's wrong with your son well, is that he's a boy in a world where there's internet porn. No, that actually, I mean, I'm I'm actually pretty sympathetic to that. That makes sense. But I mean, just to be clear, I think that that's a, I think that's a different definition of kind of quote unquote porn literacy classes than what some progressives seem okay. to want, where there's this idea that like. We're going to teach kids that it's not realistic, but also that like fantasies are okay. And we might even show them pictures of like healthy. I mean, there's, there's some weird stuff out there where the, the proposal seems to be that we educate people about it without implying that it, there might be consequences. You seem to be saying, we're not going to tell people don't watch it necessarily, right. but we are going to, we are going to educate them with an eye towards making them appreciate this may have some bad consequences. You should be careful of it. Yes, I, I, right? that's, exact, that's exactly right. I mean, it's certainly not a, when you yeah. talk about, I mean, I would say the same is true for like things like sex education. I mean, I don't think that to do good sex ed, you have to be sort of sending a message, sex is great. I mean, I mean yeah. probably most people yeah. think it is, or when it's great or who it's with and so on. It's more just about understanding your biology, understanding like, and I think particularly, and this should be a male only class too. I think just, because uh, I think right now there is this, a, a real problem for boys and young men, especially, which is the danger. They're not equipped for it. And so parents just put lots of software to try and stop them watching it, which they can always get around, by the way. You know, spoiler alert, any kid who knows their way around tech is going to out is going to outwit you. And then, you know, as girls just sort of wrinkling their noses at it, saying, oh, that's kind of disgusting, which probably has been true for the whole of human history, because there is that difference, as I said before. And then, you know, maybe a bunch of people are wagging their fingers at you saying there's something wrong with you. And that there's, there, there's something wrong with you could be someone from the left saying it's an example of toxic masculinity or a very conservative Christian saying this is sin. Um, but, but either way, I don't think they're the, they're the best way into a good conversation about the potential problems that this can cause. So that's why I think, I, I, again, I just 
looking at square sure, in the face sure. and trying to help people, equip people to deal with this reality is how I think about it. So I, I keep promising to talk about solutions, but we should we should actually do that. You, you <laughs> well, let number. me interject to say one thing's Please. interesting about it. I had a whole chapter in the book on sex that I took out. And my my agent, who's a very good friend of mine, said, yeah, you, you, you're right to take this out. If you have a chapter on sex, no one will ask you about your ideas for more technical high schools. And it turns okay, out so let, me, let, me, let me ask you this right to us. <laughs> I don't have the chapter and I'm still talking about, I can't tell you, I've probably talked about Tinder a hundred times more often than I've talked about technical high schools, even though there isn't a chapter in there on sex. So let me let me then ask you about your your sexy ideas for more technical high schools. Um, yes. How do we how do we solve the gap? How do we how do we remediate the underlying problems? Give us give us the, the sort of big picture. Yeah. So in terms of education, I think the way I've set up the problems you know, leads me to be able to do the solutions quite quickly. So number one, start boys in school a year later. The so so-called red shirting idea because they develop later. There are you know, depending on how you measure it on average, they're just they're just they're behind, right? So they start school behind and they're just behind developmentally. And what's missing from the whole debate about male and female brains is not is that it's timing that's the big difference. It's not the it's not the end result. It's when the brains develop because girls hit puberty so much earlier. So that's just you know, and I think that needs evaluation. Interestingly, I think we're going to see some opportunities for research around that. Texas, for example, just gave parents a one year a one off opportunity to redshirt their kids from grades one through three. It'd be interesting to see who did that, what impact it had. Number two is the recruitment drive for male teachers. I think it's a shame that only 24% of K-12 teachers are male, only one in 10 elementary school teachers, men least like to teach English, et cetera. And that there are actually fewer men as a share of the profession teaching kindergarten than there are women flying U.S. military jets. We have more U.S. fighter female fighter pilots, twice as many <laughs> as male kindergarten teachers. And we're doing a lot to get more women into, the, into our fighter jets, which I support, by the way, but I don't really see us doing anything to get more men into our kindergarten classes. And I, I think when you've only got 2% of your kindergarten teachers are male, I, I don't think you can explain that by biological differences. And then thirdly, a thousand new technical high schools. I don't, it, depending on how you could fund, fund that, I do some, some very rough calculations that with some federal subsidies, you could create a thousand new technical high schools. That would double the number of kids who could go to a technical high schools from about 7% today to about 15%. All the evidence is that helps boys. Mm. Is that, that is just a very, very, it's like all about the boys, all of the evaluations, which I think are very strong. And, you know, that we could do that for say 5 billion. 5 billion sounds like a lot until you realize that it's 1% of what the proposal to cancel student debt would cost. I'm just, I'm just going to put that out there that that's a better use of money. That 5 billion for a doubling the number of kids in technical high schools is, a, is better than the 100 times greater number to cancel student debt. <laughs> and so I, and it'd be nice to get the apprenticeship bill through. In terms of employment, I pushed this, this is related in some ways, pushed quite hard for scholarships, subsidies, campaigns to help men get into the growing professions in what I call HEAL, health education, administration, and literacy. You know, we had, do have labor shortages in a lot of those areas and and very few men. It's interesting that those professions, social work, psychology, elementary school teaching, substance abuse counseling, have all just become more and more female over the last few decades. So whilst other occupations have become less gender segregated as women have entered them, these occupations have become much, much more gender segregated. And I think that's a problem for all kinds of reasons. I was really, I mean, it hit me in the face the other day when I looked at the APA numbers that showed that among psychologists under the age of 30, only 5% are male. And in the 1980s, psychology was a 50-50 profession. And so just, again, almost overnight, we've turned psychology into a women's profession. And I, have, no, I, and I just think that's bad for all kinds of reasons, but it's also bad if we've got lots of men who need help, mental health care who can't access a male provider. Maybe that sounds me makes me sound achingly conservative. I don't know. But I don't know a single liberal who doesn't think that a son should have the opportunity, as my son did, to see a male therapist, or as I did. And then lastly, I, I do think we need to do a lot more work to help fathers. I'm in favor of a Scandinavian-style paid leave policy, which is just wildly utopian in its in its generosity. But the key point for me is that it should be independently available to mothers and fathers. And that we should actually be doing much more to help fathers and unmarried fathers in particular who get sometimes get a difficult time of it. It depends on the state that they're in, in accessing their kids and so on. So reforming the child support system and giving fathers paid leave would be a way to, in my way, valorize fatherhood, which I, I'm very worried about fatherhood, not only for the sake of the kids, but back to where almost where we started. 
the roles for men, right? I mean, you the Kardashian thing. Like, dads still matter, or they should matter, even in a world of much greater gender equality. So even if women don't need men economically, kids need their fathers socially, morally, spiritually, if you like. But just a fatherless childhood is not good. And so I really want to kind of bring up the debate about fatherhood and put some policies in place to support dads. How do you think about a win condition here? What are the what are the metrics? What are the measures that would cause you to say we have addressed the problem? You know, let, let let's imagine your policy preferences are implemented. What does getting better look like? Yeah, that's a really that's a that's a really great question. It's a straightforward one that I've never been asked quite that straightforwardly, Charles. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I just said all that to buy myself some time in kind of classic sort of podcast buy yourself time. It's thing. it's 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 the most important skill we're going on podcast, Mike. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's a great question. It's just a way of covering. It's like, oh shit, I've no idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can give us well, one example. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll give you a boring. I'll give you a boring answer first, which is that I honestly do believe that just tracking and paying attention to these issues would be a big win. So I'm 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 tracking for example there's an interesting move in Washington state to create a boys and men commission which would track create an annual report like the girls and women's commission that's already there get the data out get policymakers interested just the stuff we're talking about before make it more visible. I honestly think that greater visibility of some of these issues that would be a huge win. It's really hard to imagine persuading policymakers to really make big strides on this until we can persuade them that it's a real thing here. And I, I just, we're part of the way there. We're talking about it, but I tell you, it's a long way to go to persuade policymakers. But I would say that I would want, I definitely would want to see the trend line in post-secondary educational attainment go the other way. I'd want to see the gender gap narrowing. I don't think we'll get parity for some of the reasons that Aaron mentioned earlier, right? We have to be realistic about the fact that you'd have to have just levels of social engineering that none of us would be comfortable with. But I, I, we can't, it can't just keep growing. So for me, it is, uh, and I think I would see increased male earnings, particularly at the bottom and in the middle, for sure. And we are seeing that now. So that's good to see more of that. And a huge increase in engaged and responsible fatherhood measured not just by the marital status of the father, but the extent to which he's in the kid's life five, six, 10 years later. So those would be the outcomes, but the inputs are going to be along the lines of some of the policies that that we that we identified earlier. The thing that's really hard to get at, Charles, and I guess it's one of the reasons why I'm struggling with this question, is that so much of what I think is going on here is just really hard to measure. I think there's just this sense of disorientation, of uncertainty, dislocation that just underpins a lot underpins a lot of these outcomes. I don't think it's as simple as, well, we'll do this in education, this in employment, and we'll have a, you know, a profile, a paid leave policy or whatever. I think there's a bit more of a malaise here and that that is actually being picked up on by a lot of people on the online and kind of more generally. And so I don't have a good metric for that, but it's got to be something about agency, responsibility, sense of purpose in the world, sense of being under your own steam, stuff that I can't measure. But I do believe that you can sense its absence and, and, and you can find, say, you're living at home, you've dropped out of high school. There's always objective measures, but there's something deeper than that going on, which I think has basically been underpinning a lot of your questions too and concerns, especially the one conversation Aaron and I just had, which is, what does it mean to do well as a man today? And who's showing, and who's showing me that way? We don't, we don't, we're really, we're really, we're really screwing that up right now. And that's where I'm well out of policy wonky space. We're a long way from technical high schools at that point. And the reason I'm a bit nervous about it is because I don't have good outcome measures. I don't have good policies. And I'm a policy wonk. I work at Brookings. I'm supposed to have a regression table. Sure. But I don't have a regression table for what I see as this kind of underlying sense of ennui that so many of our boys and men are struggling with. Okay. I think that's a good place to good closing thoughts. Aaron, what's your takeaway from the conversation? Yeah. So, you know, I started by saying I was interested in this question of gender conscious policy. I think my, over the course of my podcast, the podcast, my thinking on it has perhaps evolved a tiny bit. I still am really skeptical or or, or regard with great suspicion, any kind of race or gender conscious policies and, and generally think they should be a last resort. And I indeed was kind of heartened by some of what Richard said at the the end about 
say, you know, some of the ways that you could you could begin to solve this might be, you know, making paid family leave available equally to men and women. That's an example of a gender blind policy that I think would nonetheless maybe, you know, work or disproportionately favor men in certain ways, right? And and I think that's those are the kinds of solutions that I I like. At the same time, you know, the reality is that the 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 there are biological differences between men and women that are just you know, the, for which there are no analogous differences between race or ethnicity, right? It's just, it's a it's a very different kind of thing, and yeah, I mean, I mean, hearing some of these statistics and and thinking about the the interplay, there, there seems to be much more of an interplay between biology and socialization with the gender differences than the race differences, and to me, that does heighten the case for in some very limited cases, gender conscious policies, I still want to regard them with a great deal of suspicion, just because I have that kind of old fashioned. I think that even though I have that kind of old fashioned, classical, liberal, conservative suspicion of any, any kind of race or gender conscious policy, precisely because race and gender, or if you will, race and sex are different as various court decisions, etc, have recognized. Yeah, I mean, I can, I'm persuaded that there might be a, a limited role for kind of remedial sex conscious policy in a way that there may not be for race conscious policy. Charles? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I, I'm, I, I remain sort of a pessimist at the end of the conversation. So, so, so one way to think about all the problems that Richard is identifying is throughout the, throughout the 50s, 70s, we identified a series of pathologies in Black America. What I alluded earlier to this concept of marriageable, I think I alluded to marriageable men earlier. This concept of the decline of marriageability of black men in particular as they lost earning power, the such pathologies beset them. I think what you observe in the early 20, late 20th, late 21st century is the spreading outside of the black community to white men. This is the Charles Murray thesis. So, you know, I think I, th I think what was once understood as a problem of, of black men specifically has become a problem of American men more broadly. And on the one hand, so you know, I think that the utility of Richard's framing is if you think about this as a problem of men rather than think of this as a problem of black men in particular, maybe remediation on that level will be more effective. On the other hand, we've been trying to solve this problem for 50, 60 years. We haven't figured it out yet. So I, you know, I'm policy pessimist in all things. You know, I like his proposals. I think they're interesting. I wonder about the impact. But, you know, I think you probably step in the right direction if you at least admit that there's a problem. Yeah, let's with that do some recommendations. Aaron, do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? I do. So I, I recently got a subscription to HBO Max and have been re-watching The Sopranos. Many of our listeners, though perhaps not all, will be familiar with this show. So the, the kind of famous HBO prestige drama, really the first real HBO prestige drama and arguably some still consider it the greatest TV show of all time. It's about this mob boss and his family and him kind of trying to cope with being a mob boss and being a, a family man. And it very, very directly, I mean, this was made in like the early 2000s, but it, it, it prefigures a lot of the anxieties we have now about men and the kind of aimlessness of, of, of men and, and also the general culture. But you know, if you want to show about masculinity and what ails it, it does not take an especially creative mind to read The Sopranos as a commentary on those issues. And it's a great show. So I the, 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 the Sopranos is weird because you watch it now. What's part of what's novel about it is the Tony Sopranos on Prozac. It's like everyone's on antidepressants now. That's not weird anymore. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. My recommendation this week that I think Richard actually alluded to is Nicholas Eberstadt's Men Without Work. It's a monograph about the decline of male labor force participation. I promise it's more exciting than that makes it sound like. It's, I think, arguably the most important work on the topic in the past decade, decade and a half. Worth reading if you want to understand the issue from the ground up. Richard, do you have a recommendation for listeners from your own work, from others? Sure. Well, thank you for mentioning my book, for, for sure. Maybe the previous book, Dream Hoarders, <laughs> given where Aaron and I argued about education would be useful. But I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll, give, you, I'll give you two, one, one fun and, and one serious. So the fun one would be, those who don't know the series, I think you have to get it on Epics in the US, SAS Rogue Heroes which is based on the form, the fa formation of the SAS in the North African desert. It's based on a book by a guy I know a bit, Ben McIntyre. All of his books are amazing. They're true, but, the, the, but they're true, but novelistic in their telling. And it's been turned into a really good six-part series. 
So uh, I think you can get like a five-day free subscription via Amazon to Epic. So get that and then binge it. And again, it's a bunch of guys wearing aviators and doing crazy stuff in the desert during war. So uh, interesting framings about masculinity there for sure. And then I also love Nick's, Nick's work for sure, but I'll make a... Uh, a recommendation of a paper, if that's okay, which I would had a big influence on me, which is The Tenuous Attachments of Working Class Men, which is by Kathy Eden, Tim Nelson, Andrew Churl, and Robert Francis. It's a 2019 paper. I'm trying to remember where it's published. It was published in JEP, Journal of Economic Perspectives. And I think it's free online. And it talks about how men, working class men, have become unanchored from some of these foundations of church, family, community, et cetera. It's qualitative work. So it's, you know, it's relatively small N, but very deep. And obviously, Kathy is the leader in this field. And the way it describes how men are creating this haphazard self, to use their language, really had a profound, a, a profound impact. It's one of the reasons I ended up writing this book, because of that I think I'd seen an early version of it. But it's, it's it, for my view, it's kind of qualitative work on the issues of men at its finest. Well, thank you, Richard, for joining us on Institutionalizing. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners to your questions, comments, concerns, concerns about your male children, you can always direct them to us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time that we have into this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. 